This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Samuel called Waiting for the Kingdom. We are in the book of 1 Samuel, opening ourselves up to whatever God has to say to us through this old book, and we're climbing into our time machine again. I hope you brought your 10 Tetri because it's going to be a long and rickety ride back over 3,000 years ago to the early Iron Age, and our strange conviction as the people of God is that God has more to say to us, there's more to be received through these ancient dusty stories from way back when, from long dead and forgotten people than there are in the latest bestsellers and self-help books, because God wants to speak to us. And in case you missed the previous two episodes, let me give you the briefest of recaps. Here we are after the book of Judges, there's no king in Israel, and there's about to be a transition from a time of anarchy and spiritual darkness to light and a kingdom. God is going to be, bring about a new king in Israel. And he set aside for himself this little boy named Samuel, a gift to the barren woman, Hannah. And Samuel has been raised up by God in a very dark time indeed. And things are bad in the people of God when her very spiritual leaders are decayed and corrupt. Because we have this old gentleman, Eli, who's the high priest. He's not such a bad fellow, but he has two terrible sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Two terrible, selfish, abusive people who are stealing the food from the offerings for themselves, stealing from the people of God, stealing the food set aside for God himself. Not only that, they are molesting the woman who are supposed to be serving at the sanctuary. At the heart of abuse is selfish entitlement, and that selfish entitlement is something that we all know a little bit of because we're all born with that. Every little boy or girl has a sense of selfish entitlement. But Eli was a neglectful father, and he didn't address that when they were three years old, and now these guys are 30 years old, and it's, it's too late. It's too late. That's the tragedy of Eli. And now we turn to 1 Samuel chapter 3, and if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, please open up there, and we'll hear the word of God. We'll go through this and stop and pause and Explain and see if God will give us some insights as we go through this. First Samuel chapter 3. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. And let's just stop there after verse 1 because this is such an important sentence. And nothing shows the darkness and desolation of the people of Israel than the fact that God is now silent. God is silent. There's no words from the Lord, and the words that do come are rare and very precious. They're a scarce commodity indeed. And... The pride and joy of Israel was this, that compared with the other nations, they had a God who speaks. The other nations worship mute idols that they have to cart from place to place. And on those stone figures are painted lips, but those lips do not move and no sound comes from them. And the boast of the Israelite nation was that they had a God who spoke to them out of the fire and the thunder a living God who wanted to communicate to his people. And there are fewer more important concepts in the Bible than the word of God. Even if you start with the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, it is the word of God who says, let there be light and there is light. The word of God creates, the word of God blesses, the word of God is what 
God uses to converse with Adam and Eve. The word of God commands and warns. It judges. And in Genesis 3, it also promises. Without the word of God, the people of God have nothing. They have nothing at all. Because the word of God, the speaking God, is what gives God's people their identity and their destiny. And here we have this tabernacle, this temple complex, and God is present. He's dwelling over the ark in the Holy of Holies, but he's silent, and he's been silent for years. And any true worshiper of God would have been deeply concerned. Because what we have here in 1 Samuel is what Amos describes in chapter 8 of his prophecy. There is a famine in the land of the word of God. And people can go from north to south, from east to west, in search of a word, any word from God. Some revelation, some direction, some vision. And there is nothing. And the people of God are totally in the dark. And any half-perceptive Israelite would have guessed why God was no longer speaking. It's because of the priests. And the job of the priests is to be the ones who represent the people to God, who open the way, who introduce them to God, who take them by the hand and bring them to a God who is favorable to them. And the tragedy of Israel is the most rotten, worthless, wicked, and corrupt people in the nation are the ones who stand at the head controlling all of the religious machinery. So what confidence could you have had as an Israelite coming before God if these were the people representing you? Imagine this situation. Here you are in Georgia, and you've applied for permanent residency, and you've gotten notice that your application has been denied. Because for some reason you don't understand, you've been declared a threat to the national interest. Purely hypothetical situation. This has never happened to anyone here. You are a threat to the national interest. But to your great good fortune, you think, you find a lawyer who knows the Minister of Foreign Affairs. He tells you they grew up in the same village, they've been boyhood friends, they had a business together. He knows this guy and he's going to help expedite your process. And then weeks into it, you realize your lawyer is actually one of the greatest enemies of the Minister of Finance. Yeah, they knew each other, they were in business, but your lawyer had ripped off the minister of tens of thousands of lari. He'd stolen his wife, and now every night, your lawyer is on social media saying the most vile abuse against the minister. And with a sinking heart, you realize... Your, ex your application is going to be expedited, all right. You will be expedited out of the country because your case is in the hands of the one person the Minister of Foreign Affairs despises more than any other. That's where the people of God are. Their case before God is in the hands of the most vile and wicked of men. And the great evil that Hophni and Phinehas have done is not just a private matter for themselves between them and God, but it's a sickness and a plague that is hanging on over the whole nation. And now God is not talking to anybody. And so the problem we face in this chapter, as we face in the darkest of times among the people of God, is that God is silent and we don't know what to do. Let's carry on. Verse 2, at that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to, grow, begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, here I am, and ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son, lie down again. 
Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. And therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now, it's no accident that immediately after speaking of the fact that there's no frequent vision in Israel, our narrator goes on to describe the high priest as being nearly blind. And Eli's bleary eyes obviously are not merely a physical condition. There's no frequent vision in the land because the high priest himself, if not quite spiritually blind, is very dim of sight. And it's bad news for the people of God when the man at the head, the man who should have the sharpest eyes and the furthest vision, is groping in the dark in front of him with his hand. And it's nighttime. Eli's lying down somewhere in the temple. And by the way, this word temple might be a bit confusing because if you're alert, you're thinking, wait a second, there's no temple yet. Solomon's going to build that. Well, here we are at Shiloh. There's the tabernacle, the tent, and it seems like around the tabernacle, some semi-permanent structure had been built. And Eli, the high priest, the old man, is somewhere in the complex sleeping, and Samuel is seemingly right inside the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, in the holy place, you'd walk in, there'd be a room at the end with a curtain over it would be the holy place, the holy of holies. On one side would be the table with the showbread, and on the other side, the lamp of God. And this was a seven-branched lampstand hammered out of a single piece of gold, and it had leaves and flowers engraved on it. And this lamp seems to have been a symbolic representation of the flowering tree of life that had been not, not been seen till the Garden of Eden. And the book of Exodus commanded, this lamp needs to be lit at night, and it needs to remain lit the whole night long. And so here's the boy Samuel, who in fact is a Levite, and he's, his job is to sleep with a very light eye, half open eye, so that whenever the lamp starts sputtering and is about to go out, he leaps up and refreshes the oil and keeps the lamp burning. But there's something so poignant about the fact that in this time, of great spiritual darkness and decay, we find that the lamp of God has not yet gone out. And it would seem to be a time of total despair for anyone who is truly seeking after God, but there is something flickering in the very house of God. And there is one boy, a teenager at this time, who was the person in Israel living the closest to the presence of God. His location is significant, right in the holy place, tending the lamp of God. And as long as that lamp of God's presence is being fed, there's always hope for the people of God that the blessings of the tree of life might somehow come to the people of God. And so here's Samuel. He's, he's asleep, but he's a light sleeper. And as he's sleeping he hears a voice calling his name. Now, the narrator tells us this is the Lord speaking, but Samuel has no idea of this fact to him. This is an audible voice. There's nothing supernatural or divine sounding about it. He confuses it with the voice of Eli. Now, in the ancient world, there was a practice known as incubation. It had nothing to do with chickens or eggs or lights the idea of incubation was this, that a pharaoh or a king or an ordinary person would go to sleep on the grounds of a pagan temple, and they would be ritually prepared, and they would go to sleep with the expectation that while they were sleeping, the god would speak to them during the dream and reveal to them the path that they needed to take personally or as a nation. Samuel is not doing any sort of incubation here. He has no expectation about hearing the voice of God. 
He's not seeking to, uh, for God to speak to him. He's just sleeping, and God wakes him up by calling his name. And Samuel has obviously learned the practice of prompt obedience because as soon as he hears his name spoken, he says, here I am, and he jumps to his feet out of the warm, cozy bed and runs through the corridors of this temple complex to Eli. And he presents himself at the side of the bed of the high priest and says, here I am, for you've called me. Now, Eli is an old man at this time, and Samuel seems to be his personal attendant. And as an old man, he may have had certain embarrassing personal needs in the middle of the night, and Samuel would be frequently summoned to help him. And Samuel is assuming this is yet another one of those occasions. But Eli did not call. Eli had been sleeping, and he's jerked out of his sleep. And he tells Samuel, I didn't say anything. Go lie down again. And this happens a second time. Samuel, the voice says. And notice the second time Samuel doesn't run. He walks. He goes to Eli and says, I heard your voice. You were calling me. What do you want? And Eli repeats, I wasn't calling you. You're confused. You're mistaken. Please go lie down again. And then in verse 7, the narrator of this book gives us this parenthetical piece of information that Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. In chapter 2, we learn that evil Hophni and Phinehas did not know the Lord either. And in their case, they had no desire to know the Lord. They had no longing. They had shut their hearts against God. They had no regard, no respect for God because they're worthless men. Not so with Samuel. He does not know the Lord because he's young and he's immature and the word of the Lord has not yet been revealed to him. God has his hand on Samuel. From before his birth, God has set Samuel aside. He's blessed his mother this boy has appeared. He's been given as a gift to the temple from a very young age. And God has plans for Samuel to be a leader and a judge among his people. But Samuel is not ready to lead until he knows the Lord. Nothing more disastrous for the people of God than to be led by those who do not themselves know the Lord. What a disaster that would be. Moreover, the word of the Lord has not yet been revealed to Samuel. How can he possibly lead the people? How can he possibly tell them, this is the direction we need to go in? This is what God wants if he himself has not received a message from God. So before Samuel is ready to step into the mission that God has for him, he needs a personal encounter with the living God himself. And then a third time, he hears this voice, Samuel, and he goes again to Eli, I'm sure, here I am, are you sure you didn't call me? And then Eli perceives. His eyes may be bleary and unfocused, but he's not totally blind yet. And a realization dawns on Eli that this God who has been silent for years or even decades is about to speak again. Now, this may have been a painful realization for Eli because the red telephone is ringing, but it's not for Eli. God is not summoning the high priest, the person at the head of the, of the people of Israel to speak with. He's chosen this young boy. And God is bypassing the spiritual and religious chain of command because what God cares about, what he's impressed with, is not symbols and status and offices and special robes. God is looking for the heart of someone who is willing to listen to him. And God has found, God has created someone who's going to listen to him and to respond to him. 
But Eli has not completely forgotten what it means for God to speak to someone. And perhaps in the early promising days of Eli's high priesthood, he himself had had the awesome privilege of the living God speaking to him. And he knows what Samuel needs to do. And he coaches this young boy and he puts the words in his mouth. Samuel, my son, go lie down in your place. And when you hear your name being called again, say this, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And he makes sure Samuel knows and has memorized the phrase that he needs to utter to open up this line of communication with God. And Samuel leaves Eli's room for the last time that night and goes and lies down. And I would bet you anything that Samuel did not fall asleep. Because here is this young boy who has never experienced what it means to have God speaking to him. And now, to his terror, he's been told, God has a message for you. In the middle of this dark night, night, there is a voice that wants to address you. And we can imagine Samuel lying in his little cot with his eyes open, the shadows dancing wildly on the wall from the lamp of God's presence, his palms sweating, waiting for this mysterious voice to speak to him once again out of the darkness. Verse 10. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Here at last, the Lord Yahweh appears to Samuel, and he comes and stands before him and calls his name. And this is a vision. There was some kind of appearance. Samuel saw something, but what matters is not what Samuel saw because none of that is recorded, however fascinating that might be. It's the voice that matters, the message that God has to say. And the Lord comes and he addresses Samuel by name, Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel repeats what Eli says, speak for your servant hears. He repeats almost exactly what Eli told him, but he does not say the name of the Lord because Samuel does not, he has not yet encountered this God. He's afraid to address him by name. Speak for your servant hears. It's this invitation for the communication to begin. And Samuel has closed his mouth and he's opened his ears and he's 
taken this posture of total reception to whatever God has to say to him. You know, God could have just begun speaking to Samuel at the very beginning of the story, the first time he addressed him. But it's important to God that this young man be ready to hear what God has to say. And God is not about to speak until he's found someone who is willing to listen. Speak for your servant hears. Now let's just stop at that verse for a moment. Because up till now, many of us who are raised in the Christian church will be well familiar with this story. One of perhaps one of your favorite stories from the Old Testament. This sweet story of God appearing to this boy in this moment of spiritual awakening in the midst of the temple. This is where the Sunday school lesson typically ends because what follows is not sweet and heartwarming. The very first message that God has for Samuel are not comforting words of affirmation or an invitation to personal intimacy with the divine. They are terrifying words of judgment for someone else. God is angry. He's angry with Eli and his whole house. And the first thing that he wants to say after years of silence is a word of judgment on Eli and his house. God had appeared in chapter 2. This man of God had appeared out of nowhere to deliver a rare word from the Lord to Eli that God was going to judge the house of Eli. And there was no response from Eli, and the man of God disappeared. And perhaps Eli had comforted himself with the hope that God had forgotten or that God would relent. And the fact that God no longer was speaking was not entirely bad news to Eli. But now God is speaking, saying, The words I have spoken are going to come true. Eli is a man of well-meaning but idle words. And he's rebuked his sons in chapter 2. That's not a good thing that you're doing, boys. But he's failed to act. His words had no teeth to them. He spoke words, but he did not remove them from the priesthood. But the words of Yahweh are not idle words. And what God says, he will do. God's words have teeth to them. And God tells Samuel, there is a day coming when everything that I have spoken by the man of God is going to come true down to the very last words. And what I'm going to do, my judgment against Eli and his house is going to be so shocking and so disastrous that everyone who hears the report of what happens are going to have ears that burn and tingle at the terrible news of the judgments of God. And on that day, I'm going to fulfill against Eli everything I have spoken concerning his house, every single thing because there was iniquity in Eli's house. There was evil and he knew about it and he did nothing. Eli was not the man who committed the evil, but he was in a position to put an end to it and he did nothing. And there are times when doing nothing, when being passive involves us and makes us complicit in the same evil that is going around us. And all Eli had to do to destroy his house, to bring down upon himself 500 years of honor and privilege was to do nothing. That's the tragedy of Eli's life because his sons were blaspheming God. Now we have no record of blasphemous words that Hophni and Phinehas uttered against God. Perhaps it was just their whole life and their whole ministry that was one unending curse word against God. They're a living blasphemy against God. And their very lives, their very ministry in the temple is a horrible stench in God's nostrils. And therefore, because of this evil in the very house of God, God swears to Eli and his house that their sin will not be atoned for ever by any sacrifice or any offering. Hophni and Phinehas and Eli can bring 
hundreds and hundreds of bulls and goats and rams and sheep. And there can be an unending stream of smoke and incense rising to God. But no matter what they sacrifice and no matter what they offer, their sin is beyond the hope of any mercy and any forgiveness from God. That is a terrible judgment. And that is the most terrible of judgments. And there is an irony here. There's something so fitting about this because Hophni and Phinehas had treated the offering of God with contempt. And now God will treat the offering of Hophni and Phinehas with contempt. They had kicked at it and trodden it underfoot. And now God will refuse to accept anything from these men because he is determined to put them to death. And then the voice stops. This is the communication that Samuel receives and he lies in his bed until morning. I'm sure sleepless, wondering, I've received this word. Now what? What am I supposed to do? Because you notice in this revelation, there are no instructions to Samuel here. It's purely a message, a declaration of what God is going to do to Eli. And you can feel in this chapter the deep respect and affection between old Eli and young Samuel. Samuel is prompt in his obedience and deep in his respect to this old man, this elder, this high priest. He reveres him clearly. And Eli speaks to Samuel with deep affection. He addresses him as my son. Eli's own natural sons do not respect him and will not listen to him. But now Eli has this surrogate son, as it were, this young boy that he's fathering or grandfathering. And now Samuel begins to realize that he has the painful duty, the painful duty to stand before this man that he loves and respects and announce the judgment of God. Samuel's very first duty in his new calling as a prophet from God. We cannot imagine how difficult that would have been for Samuel. And he's afraid. He's afraid to stand before the old man and tell him this terrible message from God. The morning comes, the first pale light of dawn appears on the horizon. The lamps sputter out. Samuel opens the door and begins the business of the day. And then he's summoned by the high priest. And it really is Eli this time summoning Samuel because Eli knows something has happened in the night. God had a message for Samuel and Eli is burning to find out what God has spoken. And I'm sure it was not just Samuel who lay in bed sleepless until the dawn. Eli, too, would have been lying there wondering, what does God have to say? And Eli, he half knew and he half suspected the message from God. And he sees the fear in Samuel's eyes as this young man is standing before him. And Eli has to threaten Samuel. May God do so to you and more also. May God bring violence and death upon you if you hide anything from what God spoke to you. You must tell me. I must know what the word of God is. Hophni and Phinehas could have, couldn't have cared less what God might have had to say, but Eli must know. Isn't there something so tragic and pathetic about the fact that Eli, first of all, has to coach Samuel to hear from God, and then he has to coach him to speak for God. And Eli, this old man, must help the boy to pronounce the devastating judgment that is going to fall on his own head. And so encouraged by Eli, Samuel tells him everything and withholds nothing from Eli. 
there were two tasks that belong to any prophet from God. There's listening and there's speaking. There is passive reception and active declaration. And without the passive receiving from God, the prophet has nothing to say. But if the prophet merely hears and hides it within himself, he has failed in his duty as a prophet. And he is not speaking for God. And therefore, the Old Testament tells us, if he fails to speak the warning that God has, the prophet himself will share in the judgment that God is going to bring. Samuel can only be a prophet if he faithfully and fearlessly speaks everything that God told him, withholding nothing. And Samuel, in his own private judgment, may have felt the temptation to soften the message. He may have felt the temptation to add a few observations or interpretation of his own, but he says no more and no less than the very words of God to Eli, his first task as a prophet. And Eli bows his head and he receives this judgment. And in perhaps the finest moment of this old man, he says, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. There's no excuses offered by Eli, and we could ourselves imagine many for him. There's no evasions. There's no argument. He simply receives the just judgment of God that is going to come on his house. We just need to stop for a moment and notice the great skill of the narrator of this book. And it's Robert Alter, the Jewish commentator, who points this out, how the narrator so skillfully makes us feel sympathy towards Eli. Even while we recognize the just judgment of God, we can't help feeling sorry for this old man. And we're going to feel the same again in the book as we come to the life of King Saul, that deeply tragic and doomed figure. And the narrator will feel us, make us feel sympathy for this king, even in his disobedience. See, the Bible does not present good and evil people as flat comic book heroes and villains. Even this sinful man shows us the other side of him, sympathetic characteristics. And even the best of men in this book, Samuel and David, we see that they are flawed men. And the word of God presents humanity as it actually is in all of its ambiguity towards us. And we feel ourselves involved with poor, judged, doomed Eli. Let's finish the chapter. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. We started this chapter with a critical revelation shortage. God is not speaking anymore. And now this problem has been resolved for God has established Samuel as a prophet. He's no longer a boy. He is a prophet with national respect from Dan to Beersheba, from north to south. All Israel knows that God has established Samuel as a prophet in the land. And anyone who wants to know what the will of God is need not wonder. They can go to Samuel and Samuel inquire of the Lord and God will tell him. Because the revelation in the middle of the darkness was not a one-off. God continues to appear to Samuel. And there is, there is an abundance of revelation for the people of God. After years of silence, God is speaking again. It's a ray of hope that we have in this dark situation. And when Samuel opens the doors of the temple and the morning light streams in, 
we feel that's not just physical, but there is a new light from God shining in the holiest of places. God is about to do something new. See, the problem in 1 and 2 Samuel is there is impure worship and the people are far from God. So God needs to build a temple and set up a priesthood. But to do, do that, God needs a king. And to have a king, God needs a prophet to appoint and anoint that king, to identify him. And now the chain has started because a prophet has been appointed. And there is hope for the people of God once again. What this chapter tells us today is that renewal for the nation and for the people of God can only begin with a revelation from God. God must speak or we have nothing, nothing at all. And as this chapter begins, the word of God is a scarce commodity. And there are some scarce commodities, rare gems and minerals that can be artificially produced with chemical processes in a laboratory. The word of God is not like that. If God is not speaking, there's nothing we can do to generate a word from God ourselves. God must speak. And God has spoken. Revelation has burst forth. There is a light shining. There is a voice uttering truth through the prophet Samuel. Renewal must begin with a word from God. And this word comes at the initiative of God. Notice in the book of First Samuel, in these days of dreariness and darkness, reformation and revival do not come by a committee of concerned citizens, of Israelite leaders gathering themselves around the boardroom table and beginning to strategize, to pull out their pie charts and their graphs, to conduct surveys, to brainstorm about possible strategies to bring new life to the people, pooling their resources, planning and how they're going to get financing for some huge project, some grand program that is going to revive the nation. There's no committee here. There's no one even seeking after God. It's God himself who initiates national renewal. And what hope there is in the darkest of times in your own nation, in your own church back home, when even the leadership is, if not wicked, weak and pitiful, in those dark times, our hope is not in human beings and our own resources and our own plans. It's for God to speak into the darkness. For the lamp of God has not yet gone out. And God himself will ensure that it will not go out. And there will never lack hands to carry on the work of God. And God will create and he will summon those who will speak for him. And that is our only hope for God, the living God, to speak. The tragedy at the beginning of our chapter is that there were no words from God and there was a famine of the word of God. But there is a potentially greater tragedy that the word of God is abundant. But no one wants to listen. That's an even greater tragedy. Because you can starve for lack of food. But you can also starve for lack of appetite. You can starve for lack of appetite. And our great need this afternoon is not for fresh revelation from God, although he continues to speak today, and many of us have heard him in dreams and visions and prophetic words. I will grant all that. But we have the word of God right here. And we have no right to demand fresh revelation from God if we are ignoring what he has already spoken to us in his word. Are we listening to him? And do we have hearts 
that are eager to hear from the living God. It's the only way this church will be renewed. The only way we're going to experience the power of God in us and in our community. If God speaks forth again in power through his word. We must be a church where the word of God is spoken and where the word of God is truly heard. And our danger is that we become so busy with our own ministry programs and ideas and plans that this drifts into the background. My calling as your pastor and the calling of anyone who stands here on this platform is to faithfully and fearlessly preach the word of God to you. What I have to say and my ideas and insights, clever and witty and brilliant as I might imagine them to be, have no value to you and cannot bring you the life that you need. What we need to hear is this book clearly proclaimed with the power of the Holy Spirit. And we want to be a church where we're opening up this book together, not just me, but all of us opening up, these, up this book together and asking, what does God have to say to us today? We want to be a people of the book because what we value is hearing the living voice of God among us. And true reformation and true revival only come when this voice is heard through the word of God. Now that is my responsibility before God and before you, but it is also your responsibility. And if you begin to realize this word is no longer sounding forth clearly, I'm being entertained I'm being coddled. I'm being, I'm hearing things that are not from this book. You have a responsibility to address that and to confront me. Lest like Eli, you become complicit in my own sin and fair and failing to fearlessly preach the word of God to you. This word that is meant to comfort the disturbed and also to disturb the comfortable. And we must hear this word from God. But it doesn't matter how faithfully and how fearlessly the word is proclaimed if none of us are listening. If none of us are listening. You know, there's a whole YouTube channel devoted to a guy who cleans out people's ears. So you can never come to the end of the internet. There's always something more bizarre and more disgusting you could watch so if you choose to amuse yourself, there are hundreds of videos on this channel of people submitting to having their ears clear, clear, cleaned out. And then they get to look aghast in the metal container at the disgusting things that came out of their head. And our danger is that our own ears are plugged so that we can no longer hear the voice of God. We may think we need a fresh voice from God when the real fact is we're no longer hearing him and we're no longer capable of hearing him. Eli did many things wrong, but he did one thing right. He trained Samuel to hear from God, to say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And when Samuel stood forth as a prophet to the nation, any Israelite could and should have also said in their own hearts, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And when you come here on Sunday, when you open up the word of God for yourself, is that really the prayer of your heart? Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Are we really expecting to hear from God? Not only expecting, but preparing our ears and our hearts to be obedient, to receive what God has to say, to trust and embrace without reserve and without condition God's direction for our life. 
Because as you sit there and look at me, you are aware of my many flaws and weaknesses. And I'm sure it'd be very tempting to sit there with a critical spirit, as I myself have often sat listening to other preachers. But behind me, insofar as I am faithful, is the voice of God. And that is what is going to judge us. And our danger is that we sit here in the house of God week after week, and the word of God is being preached, but somehow it's no longer entering our hearts, and it might as well be silence. God wants to speak to us. He wants to declare to us through Christ, the ultimate and final prophet, the good news of God's salvation, which is Jesus himself, the living word of God, the full revelation of who God is. And may our cry be, speak, Lord, for we, your servants, are listening. Let's bow our heads now and utter that prayer together. Holy, holy, holy God, we rejoice that you are a speaking God. And there is no way small and sinful creatures like ourselves can grope our way in our darkness towards you. But you condescend to speak to us, to initiate relationship, and speak words of judgment and of grace to your waiting people. Lord, we pray that the same spirit who inspired these words would also open our ears and our hearts to listen, to truly hear, to receive, to trust, and to obey what you have to say to us. Lord, we rejoice that none of your words will fall to the ground, that everything you have spoken is yes and amen in Christ Jesus, that his offering he has made is full and sufficient for all of our sins. And so we bow not only to words of judgment, but better words of mercy. So speak, Lord. Speak words of life. Your servants are listening. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.